give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining it for us through the ages that we would have it this day. And Father, I pray that as we come to the preaching of it, that you by your spirit would work in the hearts of your people and that you would help me, your messenger. Oh God, keep me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. In the summer of 2000, I received a resounding wake-up call that changed the very course of my life. I was in my early 20s at the time, about 23, I loved Jesus, and I loved his church. My faith was growing, and I was gladly serving in many areas of the church. I had a really good job, and I was already on track for a very successful career. I had a wonderful group of friends, many of them godly and supportive. The future was definitely bright, and I was wearing shades. Props if you get that reference. But there was one huge problem to which I was blinded, one really big problem. And I'll forever thank John Piper for pointing that out. That summer, I went to Shelby Farms near Memphis, Tennessee for Passion's very first one-day festival. Uh, Thousands of college students and young adults like myself from across the country had converged there to seek the Lord together in worship and in biblical teaching. Uh, I was there because I was old for that group. Uh, I was there mostly as a volunteer, but I was able to grab a spot in the front row of the grassy field as John Piper delivered his now famous sermon titled, Boasting Only, In the Cross, which lives on in his book, I know many of you have read, Don't Waste Your Life. Speaking as a father unto his children, Dr. Piper pled with the thousands of us sitting on the grass. He pled with us to live for something greater than ourselves, to strive for something more than comfort, more than satisfaction, more than security, and more than worldly success, to strive to know Jesus, And to make every breath and every beat of our hearts a living testimony for his glory and for his supremacy over all things in this world. Like many that day and many more since that day, God used that message to wake me up to a harsh reality. A reality that I had been living as if the world revolved around me rather than around him. 
Under deep conviction, I realized that I had been living as if I were the one who was seated on the throne. I was living practically as though God existed to serve me. He was my magic genie, right? He was my cosmic Batman who responded to me when I needed him. That God was there to meet my greatest needs. I doubt I would have articulated it that way before that moment, but my life, my heart, if you could have looked into my heart, surely revealed that that was true. God's kindness that day led me to repentance because that's what leads us to repentance, right? God's kindness. God led me to change my worldview and to truly acknowledge him as being at the center of my very life. This morning, we're embarking on a six-week topical series about stewardship. I was waiting for the amens or the groans. I planted an elder to say amen. And um, you hear that and you're like, oh great, the pastor's gonna preach at us about giving for the next six weeks, right? Because when we think about stewardship, is that not what we think about? We think about money. We think about how we handle our money. But did you know that stewardship is so much more than what we do with our money? In fact, at the heart of the very word itself, the word steward is the idea of trust. It's the idea of being entrusted with the care of something that ultimately belongs to someone else. In fact, throughout most of history, homes would have a steward, a steward who would care for the home and take care of the things of the home. Jesus himself spoke in parables and told about the stewards of the house, someone who's entrusted to take care of something that belongs to someone else. So stewardship at its heart is about acknowledgement, Stewardship is about worldview. Stewardship is about understanding our responsibility to care for what God has given us according to his will and according to his way. Stewardship is about so much more than money. Stewardship extends to every single area of our lives, to our spiritual gifts, our vocations, our relationships, so much, even to the very gospel itself and how we steward the gospel entrusted to us. You see, to fully understand the idea of stewardship, we must understand this, and that's why we're starting where we're starting today. Stewardship begins with who, not what. Stewardship begins with who, not what. And that's why I'm having us begin this week in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For it is here where we clearly see the who of stewardship, where we clearly see that God himself is the ruler of everything, that God is the ruler of all things. To state it another way, and this is how I'll state what is our first of two points this morning, God is the ruler of the house. So if you're taking notes, that's our first point. God is the ruler of the house. I'll briefly mention this because we don't have a lot of time to camp out here, but the, the whole book of Deuteronomy is what we might call a, a covenant renewal service. 
in the book, God through Moses is addressing this next, or we could say the new generation of Israelites who will soon cross over the Jordan River to conquer the promised land. You can picture them, this next generation of Israel sitting on the banks of the Jordan River. They got their eyes set on crossing and Moses is teaching them and reminding them of God's covenant that's already been talked about in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. So he's reminding them of this, renewing them in it. We remember that previous generation, right? We preached through Exodus last year. Uh, They had been delivered mightily from Egypt, right? But they had also sinned mightily. They had sinned greatly against God. And what were they resigned to do? To wonder. To wonder in the wilderness. That generation is gone except for Moses and a few others. And God's now reminding this next generation of his covenant faithfulness. God's reminding them that he is faithful. He's also calling them, reminding them that he has entrusted them to live for him, to carry out his will and his ways in the promised land. There's nothing new in this message. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, there's nothing new. But the message had been neglected. The message had been perhaps even forgotten. So just as Moses stood there and spoke to that next generation, he gave them a resounding wake-up call, as many pastors have done over the years since. The firm foundation of the whole message of Deuteronomy is highlighted in verse 14. Look there. Again, and this is repeated throughout chapter 10 and before and after chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? That's pretty clear. In fact, I don't think it can get any more clear. To God belongs everything from heaven to earth and all that fills it, all things belong to God. There's not one grain of sand anywhere. There's not one element or molecule. There's not one beast of the field, one fish of the sea, one person or one anything, insert the term there, that does not belong to God. As we've already heard and sung together from Psalm 24 this morning, It put it this way, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those within its domains. The Lord owns not only the cattle on a thousand hills, but the Lord owns everything. Why? How? This is obvious, right? I hope God is the creator. He created all things. God is the one who created the world and everything in it. He is indeed, as Psalm 24 goes on to say, he is indeed the king of glory, the almighty Lord of all. There is without a doubt a throne. There is a throne in heaven upon where the ruler of the world sits. And who sits on that throne? God, not Pastor Dan, not I won't call you out by name, but God, it's God's throne. So if all the world is to be seen as a house 
Who then would argue that God is not the ruler of that house? We might put it another way. Is God not the head of the household? In, in theory, who, who else could be, right? If it's God's house, he's the ruler of the house. But what about in practice? How do most people live? How are you prone to live? Well, if you're like me, you're a sinner. Everybody here a sinner? I'm still a sinner. You're still a sinner. And what does sin do? Sin distorts this very truth. Sin tells us that we are the masters of our own house. Sin invites us to see ourselves as rulers rather than stewards. Sin tempts us to think that we can take God off of his throne and sit ourselves there. Sin deceives us to believe that the world revolves around us, that what we have is ours, that God made us not for himself, but that God made us for ourselves. Sin leads us to think that all that we've been given is a right and not a gift. This is how I was living in my early 20s. And very frankly, it's how I'm tempted to live even now. Maybe this sounds familiar. Things like, this is my life. I have earned it. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be successful. I have the right to nice things. My time is my time. My money is my money. My things are my things. I don't have space for difficult relationships. I'm responsible for my success and the success of my children. I must retire as early as I can so I can do the things I want to do. The Bible might say that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, but since I graced him to hedge my bets with him, he owes those good things to me. I've actually heard someone say that last thing. Have you ever said anything like that? Close to that? Maybe not that last thing, but some of those things. Who thinks like this? Who says things like this? Who believes things like this? Sinners. Sinners do. Sinners like you and me. As one dear friend of mine often said, and I thank him for this, and I haven't spoken to him in years, but I quote him a lot. He said, we are so easily deceived to think that God made this world for me, myself, and I, instead of thinking that God made this world for himself, the king most high. He was a poet and he didn't even know it. Make no mistake. Brothers and sisters, stewardship begins with who. And who is that who? Sound like Dr. Ray. It is as verse 14 says, the Lord your God. The Lord your God is who. And the Lord your God, the ruler of his house, has expectations for those whom he entrusts to care for his house. He has requirements for his stewards. And that's our second point this morning. If you're taking notes, we had the ruler of the house. Now we have the requirements of the stewards. Look again 
at verse 12. Look how it starts. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. It's certainly a good stewardship question, right? We might in our heads think, okay, God, I get it. Everything belongs to you, so what do you want from me? Look at all these things you've given to me in your grace. My life, my breath, my being, my, my family, my home, my cars, my possessions. All these things. What am I to do with this? How can I be a faithful steward? How can I be a faithful caretaker of your world and your gifts to me? He answers it. He answers it in verses 12 and 13. And look what he says. Fear the consequences of failing to be your best self. Fear the possibility that all your hopes and dreams won't come true. You see it? Walk to the beat of your own drum. Be true to yourself and follow your desperately wicked heart. Love the world and the things of this world. Love yourself and let love be love as long as it's genuine. Do you see it there? Serve your own wants and needs. Work hard to get everything you desire. Use your gifts and abilities to get ahead of everyone else. And keep true to yourself. Embrace your feelings. Define yourself according to those feelings. Don't believe the lie that there is objective truth. And don't believe the lie that there's reality outside of your own feelings. Is that, is that what it says? No. That's not what it says. What does that sound like? Sounds like the spirit of the age, does it not? Sounds like the spirit of the age. It sounds like what you hear from media and from culture. And unfortunately, it sounds a lot like what you might hear in some corners of what is mistakenly called the church. But that's not God's message. Every single bit of that is a lie. That is not what God requires of his stewards. Instead, what does the text say? What does it really say? To fear the Lord your God. We'll deal with these. There's five of them. We'll deal with them one at a time. First, to, excuse me, to fear the Lord your God. This means that we're to revere God with our worship. Not be scared of him, but to stand in awe of him to revere God with our worship. In this life, we are first and foremost to worship God. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry described it this way. I'll give a brief quote from him. He said, what this means is that we must adore his majesty, acknowledge his authority, stand in awe of his power, and dread his wrath. Fearing the Lord means that we see him for who he is and we see ourselves for who we really are. He is the creator and we are the creature. He's the ruler of the house and we are the stewards of the house. The world belongs to him and he entrusts it to us to care for it. Second, to walk in all his ways, all his ways. This means that we're to surrender ourselves, surrender ourselves to his sovereign will and his providential care. God has revealed himself to us right here in his word. And in this word, we're shown how we're to live for him. 
Peter calls it sufficient for life and faith. All that we need has been given to us in his word. Some of you may know Proverbs 14, 12, but anytime we talk about walking in God's ways, this scripture comes to mind. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Death. There is a way that seems right to man, apart from God and his revelation, right? But its end is the way to death. So walking in God's ways means that we reject the ways of the world, the way that has death as its end, and we follow the ways of God, even when it means that we're gonna suffer for his sake because we do it. It means standing up for what is right according to the word. It means making decisions about how we live our lives according to his word. It means that we don't give in. I'm talking as a fool, aren't I? Because none of us can do that. None of us can do it if it weren't for his help. So don't misunderstand me. He's helping us do this. I think the song that Abby Cade and Austin introduced says it well in that last verse. It says, for tomorrow this I pray. Father, help me to live your way. Every breath and every word for the glory of the Lord. If the day should test my faith, I want that to read when the day tests my faith, and fills or, or fills my heart with songs of praise, I can face it with this hope. Jesus won't forget his own. Jesus won't forget us. So often we feel alone and afraid, and if I go this way, I'm gonna lose all those friends. I was cool at school for like five minutes, right, kids? Until I had to stand up for Jesus. And I'm gonna lose all that. That. That's worth losing to gain Christ. Following Christ is so much better. Kids, listen to me. Following Christ is so much better. It is so much better, even, even if it will test us, even if it will try us, even if we suffer. It's always the best way to walk in the ways of the Lord. Adults need to hear that too, not just the kids. We all need to hear that. To love him, to love him is the third one. That one's obvious, right? To love him. We have to be pleased with him. Pleased with all that he is for us, especially all that he's for us on this side of the cross in Jesus Christ. Loving God means that we surrender ourselves to him. We trust that he's gonna watch over us while providing and caring for us. Just like we sang in the song I just quoted, our shepherd is always there with us. And as he does it, we don't say, you know, God, you're okay I'm getting blessed beyond measure. I'm learning, I'm growing. I feel confident, I have assurance. You know those times when you actually have those things? A lot of times we struggle with that, don't we? Do we ever just say, you're all right, God. If only you'd just give me a little bit more. And we say that in sin. But when we see the Lord and we experience his manifold assurance and abundance of blessings, what do we say? Lord, I love you. You have heard my pleas for mercy and you responded and you are with me. Christians, he's always with you. He doesn't go anywhere you do. You try, but he's always there. He loves you, and he calls you to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He alone, as Dr. Piper says, 
is to be the supreme object of our affections. The supreme object of our affections. Number four, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This means that we devote ourselves to God's honor and we zealously serve him with everything that's in us. The world, the flesh, the devil will beckon us to serve ourselves, to serve our own interests. God calls us to do the opposite, to put him first. Serving the Lord means that our satisfaction and our compensation is not gonna be directly proportionate to any earthly or material reward, but rather our satisfaction, our compensation will be realized. Maybe not on this side of glory, but it will be realized in heaven when we fully realize all the treasures are ours in Christ. Listen, you may enjoy earthly prosperity. You might. But such prosperity can never be the measure of the faithfulness of God to you and your service. Never let that be the measure. Lastly, it says to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. This means that as we fear him and love him and serve him and walk in his ways, we do so believing that what he's commanded for us in his word is absolutely true and it's absolutely good. Even when our feelings tell us otherwise. I've addressed this a little bit already. Even if the world around us strays from his word, we're gonna stand on the rock. We're gonna stand on the firm foundation of God's word. So we have to reject the gospel of self-esteem, the gospel of self-fulfillment, embrace the gospel that reveals to us the obedience of faith, the obedience that's not ours of our own. It's given to us as a gift and it perseveres to the end. And we are found even to the end, loving and serving the Lord our God. There you go. There's your job description. That's the description of stewards. There's something very interesting about all five of them, though. It's kind of obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me 24 years ago or whatever it was. Did you notice how each of these requirements was centered around God? Did you notice that? That the God of the world, the God who made the world, is at the center of these requirements. We're to fear him. We're to walk in his ways. We're to love him. We're to serve him. We're to obey him. Some of you are like, duh, I see that. My life didn't look like that. It's truly centered upon God. God is the object of our stewardship. That's what it means when we say we have a God-centered worldview. And that's what it means to practice God-centered stewardship. Back in 2000, God gave me that resounding wake-up call. I needed to see and savor the supremacy of God in all things. I needed to submit every area of my life to him. I needed to live for him and him alone. So this morning, I appeal to you as a preacher of the gospel, appealing to fathers and mothers in the faith, appealing to, brother, appealing to brothers and sisters in the faith, and appealing to children in the faith. I appeal to you to put your faith in God and live for him and live for his glory in every area of your life. You're a steward. You've been entrusted to care for God's world and everything in it. 
make sure that you see him as he rightly is. He's sitting gloriously on his glorious throne. I want you to see yourself as you rightly are. You're his child. You're his steward. You're the object of his grace and love. He died for you. Jesus died for you. I remember myself sitting there. I remember that day because it was hot. It was Memphis in June. It was humid. It had rained all day. The field was muddy. And Dr. Piper was bringing his message to a conclusion. And it suddenly hit me. As I said, I was serving in the church. I was being examined to be an elder in the church at the time, young. But I was also studying John 6 in preparation for a Bible study that I was teaching. And verse 28 just popped into my head. I love when the Spirit does that. Maybe you don't know. You can turn to John if you want. But Jesus has been telling the people, you know, he had fed them, fed the crowds. And they're like, oh, we got to follow Jesus. You know, let's go see what's going on. And he tells them not to work for food that perishes, but for the food that will endure to eternal life, which he will give to them. Do you remember what they asked him in verse 28? You told me I have to do something, so what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a similar question, isn't it? It's a familiar question. It sounds like Deuteronomy 10, 12. What does the Lord require? You know what Jesus' answer was in John 6, 29? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. What do we have to do? Believe. Believe in me. And then he goes on and teaches really hard things, right? John 6, a hard chapter. Believe in me. That's the heart of Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 14. It's not about us and our works. It's about God. It's focused and centered on him. Keeping God at the center of our world is only possible because we've been oriented there. You wonder, why, doesn't, why don't other people get this? Why can't all the lost people who hate God, why can't they get it? Well, well, they can't. It hasn't been given to them. They can't discern spiritual things. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believed in him, he's calling to you saying, hey, I'm at the center. I am the Lord your God. I am your Savior. I will gift you with grace. I will sustain you and encourage you by my spirit so that you can fear me, so that you can walk in all my ways, so that you can love me, so that you can serve me, so that you can obey all that I've commanded. Here is my spirit in measure, God says to us. Here is my spirit in abundance. He's yours. You are mine. Walk faithfully in faith. Dr. Piper closed by doing what only he does. And if you've heard him speak, you know he was younger then, so he's about ready to jump off the stage. Speaking of the work of Christ and boasting only in Christ, this is how he ended, and I'll close with his words. When you put your trust in Christ, your bondage to the world is broken. And the overpowering lure of the world is broken. You are a corpse to the world. 
and the world is a corpse to you. You are a new creation. The old you is dead. A new you has come to life. And the new you is the you of faith. And what faith exalts is not self. It is not the world. But faith exalts in Jesus Christ. Faith puts Jesus where he rightly is. I should say faith acknowledges where Jesus is on the throne, in the center, ruling and reigning over everything. So I guess the question for us is, is do we believe that? Do we live like that? Will we leave from this place changed in that? Or will we go on as we do each and every day? My prayer is that God will work in your life just as he did in mine. May it be. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletin?